Situated in one of the most beautiful parts of Europe, Cyprus is a popular destination for many tourists looking to enjoy the Mediterranean sun and an island lifestyle. Its natural advantages, however, also have attracted various powers throughout the millennia to occupy the island for its economic as well as strategic military value. To this day, the British garrison troops in Cyprus as the country is divided into a southern Greek portion and a northern Turkish-occupied section. Tonight, our guest Nikephoros joins us to discuss the complicated history of this troubled nation in paradise. Well, I'm not a crook. I've burned everything I've got. A military-industrial complex. We are here to destroy the control over the industry of other people. I did not trade arms for hostages. It's been nine years. The government has Hello, and welcome back to the Myth of the 20th Century podcast. My name is Hans Lander. Today I am joined by uh, Adam Smith. Hey, everyone. And uh, our special guest uh, over from the uh, the TRS network, we have uh, Nikkei. Here hello. To, here to, hello. Here to uh, talk to us today about uh, an issue and, and a region of the world that I think many people uh, – uh, especially in, in North America, uh, don't really understand. And that would be uh, the Eastern Mediterranean, the world of Greece and Turkey and Cyprus. Uh, ancient places, uh, often forgotten and then remembered in times of horrible conflict. Uh, Nikkei, tell us a little bit about Cyprus and, uh, and why is this such an interesting topic for you? Yes, uh- well, Cyprus uh, is currently an independent country in the Eastern Mediterranean. Uh, the population uh, of Cyprus is uh, primarily Greek with a Turkish minority. Uh, today, the island exists in a uh, disjointed state where uh, while the Republic of Cyprus is uh, sovereign uh, de jure over the entirety of the island, uh, the island is de facto split in half uh, with a Greek uh, Greek government in control of the south and a, a Turkish occupation government uh, occupying the northern half of the island. Uh, there is also a region, a border uh, line splitting the two regions in half, um, which is under the control of the United Nations, and also two uh British military bases uh, that occupy a, a small but significant portion of the territory to this day. Why is there a British presence on Cyprus? And, and maybe as part of that, you can explain the, the, in the history of involvement with the British Empire and Greece and the Greeks in, in the Mediterranean. Yes, uh, the British are there because, well, in one regard, they haven't left yet. Uh, 
after the uh, First World War, um, well, a bit before it actually, uh, the British Empire took control of Cyprus uh, from the Ottoman Empire in the, in the 18, late 1870s, and uh, it became a dominion of the empire uh, from there until 1914, um, with at uh, which time the island was annexed into the into the crown. Uh, it was ultimately a, a, a crown colony uh, from uh, 1925 until independence in 1960. Uh, the bases uh, were constructed there, uh, you know, as part of its status as a British colony. Um, and uh, the abandonment of those bases uh, were never agreed to by the British upon the um, eventual agreement to independence in, in 1960. So it, it sounds like that it was part of the, the decolonization wave that was affecting mostly the, I, I hesitate to use the word third world, but it's, it's an ancient no, term it, from the Cold War, but it's uh, it is it a, mostly in Africa and Asia, but it's interesting to, to notice that that was happening in, in Europe as well or at least near, near asia go ahead uh point to to make because the the popular uh understanding of decolonization uh is white europeans uh giving up their uh colonies and dom dominion over uh you know non-white countries in you know africa and asia it, continents that don't belong to the European peoples. Uh, this is how people think of it. Uh, but in fact, uh, you know, decolonization, in, especially in the British context, includes uh, places like Ireland and Cyprus, two, two European countries. Uh, and they both follow very uh, similar trajectories, but I think that they are, uh, in a way, treated uh, differently uh, than other instances of, you know, colonial rule collapsing and the process by which uh, the British Empire retreated out of these lands. Well, an another island in the Mediterranean the British still control is Gibraltar, which is at the entrance to the Mediterranean, which obviously has right. huge strategic value. Uh, and I would imagine, similarly, on the eastern side of the the sea, the British focused on maintaining something in Cyprus for similar reasons. Now, they also were engaged in uh, the Suez uh, Canal uh, construction mm -hmm. and control up until even the, the 50s when uh, Eisenhower uh, had to uh, battle the British and the French from starting up a war over there over sort of the remnants of their colonies. Uh, but that was also part of this kind of colonial system as well. And it's, uh, it's interesting that they still have bases. I didn't know that. What part of the Island are they on? Uh, they have one base, uh, on the Southeastern and another on the Southwestern, uh, Greek portion. Uh, so the just, the, just the Greek portions. Okay. The Southwestern base, um, or Eastern base does, uh, touch the, the border, uh, controlled by uh, northern Cyprus, um, but 
it was never really seen as a uh, a Turkish like territory. So it's exclusively carved from uh, from Greek uh, land. Do, do the Greek uh, inhabitants almost like many of the uh, sort of Asian and until recently European nations? Um, do they do they like having you know this uh, this superpower relatively speaking there like the, uh, the J- Japanese and the Koreans have the Americans there uh, to ward off their more immediate enemies in this case Turkey I'm not as familiar with the uh, current sentiments towards the bases uh, you know and the British presence continuing to be there I can't imagine it's the most popular uh, thing ever but I don't know how how much it comes up in in terms of you know political relevance uh in modern cyprus uh, i think uh other issues especially regarding the the northern half of the island take a a larger uh precedence in terms of importance but i i'm sure for many people it remains to be uh you know unfinished business Within the two bases, uh, there's currently uh, over 18,000 uh, people living in them. Uh, so it, it's not a inconsequentially small uh, population uh, still present there. Uh, the The British do uh, consider it an important um, strategic location for them to have military staging. I mean... Uh, you, you brought up Gibraltar, and thinking of it, this gives them both a, a base in the eastern and western uh, part of the Mediterranean, and I'm sure that's that monopoly on uh, coming and going uh, is something the British feel is uh, very important to their military interests. Do you know, uh, or maybe you could speak to, why exactly did the British uh, become so involved in the Eastern Mediterranean? Uh, was it really to start sizing up the the remnants of the Ottoman Empire? Like, you know, by the late 19th century, everyone kind of had a good read on the Ottoman Empire. You know, this thing is, is coming apart at the seams, and we're going to have a great opportunity here to sort of carve it up and and figure out what we're going to do with the people and the resources and so forth. Do you know, it was, do you, do you speculate that's part of why the British became so involved in, uh, in Greece and in, in Cyprus? Um, I, I guess I, I ask because Greece had been and Cyprus as well had basically been under the boot of the Ottomans for centuries and no one really lifted a finger until there, you know, there was this uh, sort of, I guess you could call it, a terminal decline or t- you know, obvious terminal illness in the empire that people could start go and exploiting it. Uh, there didn't really seem to be a lot of sentiment by the British. Uh, you know, we're helping out our fellow Christians or your, you know, our fellow Europeans or anything like that. It was all very opportunistic. Yes, I, and I think this this attitude um, was. Something that was like exclusive to uh, other Eastern uh, Christian uh, nations, like the Russians, um, primarily. Uh, I don't know if it's. I'm not an expert on like the the cultural attitudes uh, towards 
you know, modern Greeks. But uh, from what I understand from the, the war for independence in, in the 20s, 1820s, uh, the British interest in it, um, in this the sense of Philhellenism that uh, grew within uh, British culture, sort of viewed Greece as that as this place that had been encapsulated from time, uh, and almost as if they sort of forgot that Greece had changed uh, over time into a, a you know a Christian nation. And still viewed it as a uh, a people who were ancient, and they had this concept of uh, antiquity and classical Greece that they wanted to save, and so that really inspired the um, the attitude of supporting uh, the Greeks, but from a, a you know liberal Enlightenment perspective that I I don't think necessarily uh, could be equated with um, uh, a pan-European or a, a pan-Christian uh, sense of camaraderie and solidarity. Well, that was the conflict that uh, Lord Byron died in, correct? Yes. <clears throat> yes. He being the most famous British volunteer and, uh, and supporter of the revolution. Sometimes I wonder, like, how if Byron fully understood the extent to which this was a a ethnic and you know in, inherently tied to that ethnic uh, sentiment religious revolution in, in the minds of those participants in it the Greeks saw this as a unshackling from you know the uh, foreign Turkish Muslim uh, domination and a reassertion of uh, of a Greek and Orthodox independence. You, you mentioned at the top of the show that Cyprus is an independent nation of Greece and Turkey, at least ostensibly. And I was wondering if you could flesh out why that is. Is it something like the UN won't allow... Greece basically to annex it and Turkey to annex their part of it so that they mitigate some of the direct tension between the two? Or is there an independent uh, notion in the Cypriot people that they want to actually be free of both of those uh, somewhat antagonistic powers and so that they don't get involved in their external struggles? I'm wondering what the independence uh, uh, has to do with like the, the people versus the external powers themselves. The, the attitudes have evolved uh, over time. Uh, where things began uh, with the independence movements in Cyprus uh, were decidedly uh, those for union with Greece. Uh, Cyprus wanted to leave the British uh, Empire to become a part of the Greek nation. Uh, this concept was called Enosis. It's a very uh, significant concept politically, and the term is, you know, hotly debated uh, between uh, the Greeks in Cyprus and the British uh, colonial government at the time. Uh, and it is this particular, or per, in particular, that uh, foments the uh, dispute between Greek Cypriots and the British uh, colonial rulers that 
this was seen as something unacceptable to the Brits and uh, that their position was more, uh, I mean, they didn't want to decolonize at all, frankly, looking into like the attitudes of what the, the British at the time had felt. One of the things that precipitated this, uh, uh, you know, argument was that Suez crisis uh, with the British no longer able to have its uh, Middle Eastern headquarters in Suez uh, that was transferred into Cyprus. And so losing Cyprus would be uh, seen on the world stage as the as like a, a sign of more to come for the dissolution of uh, British power. And given Cold War considerations at the time, that was something that the British government uh, was extremely opposed to letting persist uh, globally. They wanted to show strength uh, on the world stage. And so allowing this to happen became uh, mostly unacceptable. I mean, eventually they sort of lost their uh, lost that debate in terms of their ability to maintain to hold on to their colony. But uh, they were still able to keep military bases uh, present, which at least for uh, geostrategic purposes suited their needs, but still came at the cost of the prestige loss of having to abandon the colony, uh, you know, for the most part. It feels like a forerunner to Suez, basically. Like all the same, you know, the same uh, predicaments that went into the Suez crisis. And, you know, if you ever read about what the British attitude going in was, if, you know, if we fuck this up, if we lose this, it's it's over. I mean, we can't really hide behind this veneer anymore. There's this there's this porcelain doll veneer that we've created that, you know, we're still what we are and we're still this force to be reckoned with and we're, we're too intelligent to be outsmarted, especially not by the peasant people of the Eastern Med. That, that kind of mentality really percolated their mindset. And it, it just, especially starting in the 50s and 60s, it got them into all these, you know, horrible situations where they were horribly embarrassed, uh, mostly because they went into it thinking there's no way we're going to lose this. There's no way we're going to, we're not going to figure this out. And I could see like the, this, the Cypriot base question is, is, you know, <laughs> uh, a recognition that if, if Britain can't even hold on to, you know, an island in the Mediterranean, how is it even regarded as worthy of being on the, the UN security council? Like that kind of discussion would need to be had. Like, how is this country even, projecting power anymore it, it's sort of uh it, it's sort of difficult to ascertain but the french basically went through the same thing ultimately where they had to give up their holdings in the mediterranean they had to give up their islands they had to give up algeria they had to give up north africa because they you know they just came, became too embarrassed with this this question of how do we hold on to these places um, you know, one thing, I, one comment I wanted to make was that I, I think part of it too, in, in kind of reexamining prehistoric Cyprus, the the importance of Cyprus. Um, we talked a little bit about this before the show, in the especially in the Bronze Age, was when 
Cyprus became, um, you know, thoroughly populated and it had a, it was a sort of a mix of Minoan and Mycenaean and, and sort of uh, internal Cypriot culture. They were sort of cousins of the Hittites and they worked under the Hittite empire at times. Um, uh, the, the name that was used for Cyprus was Alisaya or Alisia was the, the common vernacular word across multiple languages in, at the time. And uh, they were they were known as being important because they were they were tough island people that you didn't want to really invade or screw with. Um, but they had access to a, a very vital part of the Mediterranean, the calm seas, natural harbors, not a lot of bad storms in, in their neck of the woods. They had a lot of copper on the island. Um, they were sort of in a perfect geographic position. And their whole role in that Bronze Age ecosystem was to maintain the trade routes, to main, you know, act as uh, both a giant harbor for ships, to do a lot of the inventory work and you know, sort of intermediate logistics work for all these trade networks. You know, there were um, there was ancient British tin flowing through Cyprus to uh, the Middle East at the time. It was, you know, it was probably one of the most important places in the world. Hmm. Um, and I, I do wonder if that, that is part of the same reason of why it became um, so kind of critical for the British and kind of leading us into this crisis in the 50s. You know, if you control Cyprus, uh, just, you know, as with 3,500 years ago, you control the Eastern Med effectively. You're able to control the trade routes and you're able to control uh, a huge military advantage over anyone else in the region. It was one of the ways, uh, if I recall, that the Hittites actually exercised uh, some level of control over Egypt was through their military holdings in Cyprus. You know, there was always this threat they could dump soldiers off Cyprus into North Africa and uh, immediately start a war at any given time. So I don't know if, if you kind of see it similarly, if there's Part of what, you know, it really puts Cyprus into these positions with the British is that it's just it's too strategically important. It's uh, it's just located too well. You'd have to like you have to do what the Chinese do and make it out of sand on a reef. If it wasn't there, you would need right. you would need something there. Right. in that kind of uh, giant bay formed in the eastern med. Yes. And that's why the uh, the Turks uh, had seen it as such a, you know, threatening position as well, why, why the Turks could not tolerate a, uh, a union with Greece. Uh, as they saw it, it was uh, strategically pointed, you know, literally physically pointed into their, what they called the soft underbelly of their of their country. Uh, and having that fully under Greek control was something they, they viewed as a as threat. Um, you know, whatever validity to that, I, I have my doubts, but uh, that's their was their stated uh, attitude towards its significance. Well, weren't there two regions of Anatolia, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, kind of after Greek independence and the Ottoman Empire is just dead in the water post-World War I. Um, there's a, the, the Treaty of uh, Severus, or, or Severs and, uh, in 1920, and there's this attempt to start ceding pieces of land in Anatolia proper to the new Greek kingdom. 
Um, and there was going to be this big chunk around what's like modern Smyrna uh, or Ionia that was going to be granted to Greece, along with yes. most of what's basically now Bulgaria would have been given to Greece. Um, and then three three years later, this was uh, th- this was undone. The Treaty of uh, Lausanne or Lausanne. Um, and I wonder if that was also part of it. Like there was, you know, the, the, the political machinations at the time, you know, in order to get whatever the British wanted out of post Ottoman Turkey, they needed, they couldn't uh, allow for the Greeks to have these strategic territories, you know, uh, inside Anatolia on the, on the peripheries of the country. And Cyprus feels like that as well. He could have, had you know, had there not been that treaty in 1923, you could have Greece today could have basically zeroed in on Istanbul within and uh, and probably Ankara within uh, a week. It would have been you know at any given time they could have uh, put them under the the heel effect <laughs> pretty much very right. quickly. And you know, looking back on it, we can say you know these were the failed opportunities uh, on the part of Greece. Um, you know, being here today, wanting to see the best for the the country of my, my ancestry, you know, I, I prefer to have a forward-looking perspective, but I think it is important. On another hand, it is, you know, significant, important to it, recognize uh, the things that could have been to learn from errors that were made. I think uh, what ruined the uh, Treaty of Sevres uh, was the uh, Greek, the Kingdom of Greece's military incursion into uh, Anatolia after gaining these new lands? And uh, I think it, the the failures there were a sign that Greece had overplayed its hands, and that uh, as a as a cost for that, they had uh, I guess effectively forfeit their control over you know the these newly acquired lands, which were populated by Greek people at the time uh, and had only uh, been, you know, depopulated of, of Greeks shortly after Lausanne uh, because of the population exchange agreements between Greece and Turkey. So maybe that, that can lead us into the, this crisis in the, in the post-World War II era of Cyprus. I know that was uh, that was kind of the the inflection point um, that you wanted to talk about. So maybe kind of lead us in. How do we get to uh, the Treaty of Lausanne uh, and uh, you know the internal problems of Greece and Turkey to uh, you know a near war over control of Cyprus? Oh well, Lausanne was uh, before the the Second War. That was uh, twenty three. Yeah. Um, the uh, issue in Cyprus was uh, in the began in the fifties. The Cyprus Emergency, as they as the British called it, um, it was uh, a insurgent uh, guerrilla uh, campaign launched against the the British colonial rule uh, by a, a Greek general, Georgios Grivas, uh, against the British. He had. Uh, uh, led a campaign that the British called a terroristic, uh, I guess the neutral sources just call it uh, insurgent. Uh, 
depending on how you feel of the uh, particular actions carried out, you know, you could argue about the terms, but effectively what it was was just uh, different military actions carried out to uh, weaken the colonial rule by targeting British police forces, uh, military forces, uh, various uh, assassination attempts against uh, colonial governors, uh, things that were done to uh, either force the British to abandon it completely or at least bring them to a uh, negotiating table with the uh, Greek Cypriot leadership uh, under Archbishop Makarios. And Greece was kind of going through a civil war at this time. Do I have that right? Like, you know, Greek Greece itself is kind of in total chaos. There's a, there's a, a an attempt to preserve sort of the old order, and there's a there's a communist element that's sort of taking hold back in the mainland. Uh, yes, I think I believe Grievous himself uh, had one of had a lot of his experience from the the civil war. Uh, he first started serving in military uh, in a military leadership capacity uh, during the occupation of Greece by the Axis powers. He was a uh, resistance fighter uh, during the time, and this wasn't the this would be like the first interaction he'd have with Allied powers, uh, presumably with the British specifically. So it's it's interesting his history with them, going from a uh, a resistance leader that they supported to a person that they lambasted in the press as a as a terrorist you know targeting innocent british uh uh colonial uh security forces in cyprus uh, i think this pattern war is, was, is uh, a little ahead. earlier i was just going to jump in real quick um you guys please uh continue after me with your uh, much, much greater knowledge of this particular subject. I was just trying to make a loose analogy based on what I'm hearing is that I've noticed this pattern of seeing after it's either an occupation or there's a civil war or effectively it's, it's a very local and a hot conflict that effectively generates uh, and selects for a lot of homegrown leaders and, and heroes uh, to put a somewhat subjective term on it. And I think once the dust settles with their internal conflicts, uh, there's, for whatever reason, it's either maybe personal ego or pride or just the simple opportunity presents itself that a lot of these people strike out for more. And you could uh, you could even look to countries like uh, China, you know, after World War II, where they were fighting an occupation army from the Japanese. After that happened... They went through a huge civil war. Then the Chinese Communist Party was formed, and they uh, they went on, a, you know, all these sort of expansionist campaigns. Uh, shortly thereafter, they tried to get into Vietnam. Uh, they've been threatening to get into uh, Taiwan for years. Uh, they've uh, gone into Tibet. Uh, so this pattern, I think, is very recurrent throughout history, where you have uh, effectively a, a hardened group of military. Uh, cadres developing and then they strike out for more. Uh, it just seems like that's what might have been happening here. Unless there were some long-standing grievances for the 
Greeks in Cyprus to call for this. But from what I'm hearing, it sounds like the the guy over in Greece just saw this as sort of an opportunity. But correct me if I'm wrong. Were, were the people in Cyprus asking for it? Uh, yes. I, this wouldn't have been possible without popular support. I mean, you, you can't make uh, a uh, an insurgent out of uh, out of a non-committed and apolitical individual. Uh, the independent streak and you know the desire for autonomy uh, has always been strong in in Greek culture. Um, one of the things that I I discovered upon you know my research into the topic that uh, the British commanders who were involved in the uh, Cyprus emergency they cite as a, a extreme failure on behalf of the British was allowing the Greeks of Cyprus to engage in uh, independent educational systems. Uh, they saw this as a way that the uh, in their view, that the Greeks were able to inculcate this idea of uh, of NOC's union with Greece uh, into the into the youth, um, and that uh, had the uh, British colonial government been more responsible, they would have intervened in the educational system to uh, deny them this opportunity to include a you know political uh, envision well a Greek political vision into the into the education um, you know uh, the way they would see it uh, that the British had the British been in control of the educational system it would have been nonpartisan but again I think it's a uh, it's worth noting that that is a political education it's one with of intentional neutrality and they saw that the fact that uh, Greeks were educated separately from Turks uh, in Cyprus was also a problem, and that had schools been integrated, uh, the uh, desire for uh, independence and or and even union with Greece would would have been stamped out at the get go. And I don't think they're wrong uh, for having this uh, perspective that uh, they would have been able to stamp out this desire had they had you know more brainwashing control over the population but i i had strongly disagree with uh the legitimacy of that tactic i want to know uh you guys' thoughts on you know this uh the use of education as a as a means of controlling a, a subject population <laughs> i think we're living that in sounds one sounds like a very british i mean <laughs> you know it's um it's interesting because i think that you know, the, the education aspect of controlling a population was something that uh, really came about broadly uh, in in most European countries as a result of industrialization. Like how do you have a uh, very codified, uh, very regimented hierarchical system of education that you can kind of very easily manage what people are learning, when they're learning it, how they're learning it any given day. And it's to create a system for maximum output. And then you kind of decide what you want that output to be. So if the, if the idea is, okay, we need the maximum output of Cypriots who don't uh, don't cause problems. Um, well, 
and don't and you know and don't want to endorse this sort of ethnic nationalism don't really want to be a part of anything other than work and have some semblance of culture and be good british subjects the the irony is that everywhere britain tried this it failed to some extent like it had it had some level of success but it often backfired uh, and I think that the the trouble with trying to use education as a means of eradicating uh, people's independence is that it's ultimately not effective if you're committed to that and only that. So the British, by you know the post World War II world, could not do the things that they would have probably normally done to more rebellious subjects. You know, less than 100, 160, 170 years prior, they, uh, you know, they designed, decided that they were going to just start killing those subjects. And that was here in North America. Uh, they couldn't really do that anymore. And so I think that using this education to keep people um, uh, in a sort of state of non-committance to anything never really works because people want to be committed to something. Which is why I assume that the Greeks had more success because they were basically teaching uh, everything that the British were, uh, hard work, good values, trying to be a regimented society. But uh, there is an innate uh, uh, special character aspect to who you are as a Greek or a Cypriot or a Greek Cypriot. And uh, you should you should embellish that, and you should be a part of something bigger. That's far more interesting than being a part of nothing. I would add on the subject of education. Uh, there's two two main types that you could make a distinction between. That's the mass education, which is definitely a byproduct of industrial society, and the education of elites. Uh, from you know the colonial days, taking the would-be elite of a subject population and bringing them back to Europe uh, and to a, one of the high universities or something like this, and to inculcate them into the imperial structure. Uh, and that too also had had its great fails. I mean, probably one of the most famous incidents of that in the 20th century was Ho Chi Minh. I'm I'm not uh, familiar with his particular case. Could you elaborate? Well, Ho Chi Minh was was educated, uh, you know, came from Indo was sent from Indochina and educated. I forget at which which university, but I, I want to say Sobran, but I'm not sure. I don't have that on hand. But I mean, he goes on to lead a revolution against the the French. So. There's that. I mean, you've you have others. I think Chiang Kai-shek was educated in the West as well. Uh, you have on the mass even, side. Even Saddam. The, I mean, if you're talking about, about rebellions, you have Saddam was educated at uh, at the American University in Cairo, I believe, for a time. And uh, you know, you have you have a lot of these figures who I think are. Whether they go into it thinking, you know, I'm here to trick them and I'm here to learn how they operate, I don't think a lot of people go into it. I think that they they go into it and they come out with the impression of, uh, you know, holy shit, I'm smarter than how they think 
or you know, I'm smarter than what they perceive. And they really think that they're going to get away with kind of numbing me and turning me into just sort of a loyal subject. Um, you know, the British just had a very poor record of actually being successful at this. They, they never really convinced anyone of anything. I think, uh, the great failure of the British empire was, um, the only people who by the end of it were convinced of Britain's power were the British. Everyone else uh, were convinced that this whole thing was a sham and, uh, it, it needed to be kind of done away with and it had, it had failed really spectacularly. Uh, so I don't, I don't know if education mm-hmm. even I as a for, form of control yeah. works, but I, I certainly would. don't think that the British attempt to do it, uh, was, was working. It didn't work anywhere. And it's not, it's not really a shock that it totally backfired in, in Cyprus. All right. Well, their, their particular complaint was that they didn't try in Cyprus as they had elsewhere. I, I'm not an expert on it, but I believe that this was, uh, something they carried out in Ireland, uh, like a very controlled education environment, um, while they were, uh, in power over the whole of Ireland. Um, but, uh, yes, the, you know, the commanders, the British commanders in, in Cyprus, uh, after the fact cited this as one thing where the British rule, uh, failed to act and, uh, eventually led to the uh, situation that they faced. Yeah, I think that if you if you looked at their their after action reports on all of their losses, especially in the 20th century, they would probably say the same thing about every situation they found themselves in. They would say that about uh, especially the loss of India, you know, the inability to for them, I, I Part of their their whole mindset towards the sort of the downfall of the Raj was, if only we had convinced these people, or if only we had educated them on what they gain from working with us. And the reality is that, you know, when people feel like they're subjects, it doesn't matter what you try and teach them and to how they're benefiting from it. All they really recognize is that they're subjects. Right. I can't really understand this, this attitude, this mindset of, well, we didn't, uh, propagandize hard enough and that's why we (laughs) failed. I honestly, I think it, a lot of it just stems back to the British, uh, lost their edge, um, uh, in, in dealing with, especially their colonial subjects. It's hard to say when they lost their edge, but they really, they lost it at some point. And, uh, I don't know if America was the first sign of this this waning. Um, uh, I think waning I think Germany also was a big sign. I mean, they were competing uh, economically against Germany very poorly. No, I mean, in terms of late how 19th they, century. Well, Germany Germans were never subjects. I'm talking about how they, like you know, the Cypriots were they were subjects of the crown, and and this failure to propagandize and brainwash the subjects is a very uniquely British thing where they they always seem to they didn't always but they seem to fail uh, at every turn and they occasionally had more success um, violently putting down rebellion they would they violently put down China you know they violently put down 
um, India. They, um, yeah, they yeah. violently put down India multiple times. They violently put down Burma. They, you know, they violently put down many rebellions in Ireland and Scotland and Africa and, mm-hmm. and Wales. And you know, this goes back a ways, but uh, that was the only their really their success. I, I, you know, I think that had they been far more violent, and had they really put the screws to the Greek Cypriot people, they might have been successful. Um, but then you're kind of, you're left ruling a pile of ashes. Mm-hmm. And, and so I don't know if that's yeah. necessarily what you go in wanting. And so the, I think that it ultimately comes down to the British were on borrowed time and their, their control over, especially a place as, uh, culturally different to them as Cyprus, uh, it, it just it didn't make any sense, and it, and it's and it's not like Hong Kong where you're basically ruling over a glorified harbor. Uh, you you are trying to rule over a whole island with real like land, a nation of people, <laughs> like a real nation of people with with mountains and caves and and forests and farms and houses and it's, it's a place where you can find distinction uh, right. within the people living there. I mean, you know. Yeah. Like you were comparing to uh, just having a harbor in China, all right, you can generalize pretty, pretty easily, and you you won't be too wrong, you know, in making assumptions about who you're dealing with. But like, uh, when you have a whole island uh, with a very long history of the pe- with the people living there, I, I think it's uh, you have to understand it far differently, uh, and. One of uh, one of the most revealing things that I learned was from uh, interviews with uh, one of the uh, governors appointed there. He was a field marshal, uh, John Harding, uh, and he was appointed to this uh, position to deal with the emergency, uh, given his history with the Malayan emergency and the Mau Mau uprising uh, prior to this. Uh, and one of the things that he uh, found most important uh, and what he did was, uh, open, in his own words, was opening communication between the government and the media. Uh, he saw that uh, when he was appointed to, the, to handle the situation, he saw the lack of uh, constant communication with the press as a as a huge problem, where the, the colonial government was lacking. Uh, and he uh, he credits himself with. Uh, you know, helping the situation by establishing a media presence uh, where there had been none before. Uh, And it was his belief that soldiers should be trained to be able to give interviews, uh, that officers should know how to express uh, the, the narrative of their mission to the press and be able to do that adeptly, uh, you know, with this, the effect being a uh, a propaganda victory. Um, he was also uh, increased the number of uh, actual men on the ground, British troops stationed there, uh, to respond to the situation and made some changes to the the rules of engagement. Uh, so he also had an increased uh, actual like hard military uh, strategy difference added to the way Cyprus was treated. But uh, the one thing I noticed from his interviews was that he seemed most proud and like uh, put most uh, 
value in the this propagandistic uh, strategy he employed. That's interesting. I mean, I, I again, I, I go back to you know the, the British. Their their most successful rebellion put downs were just through sheer violence, <laughs> like the the uh, the inability in the post World War II era, especially of the West, to do the dirty work, especially in public, uh, was ultimately part of the reason why it all kind of just fell apart. Like that was part of what really went into the fall of Alg of Algeria was that the French just sort of really ran out of a stomach to deal with you know mass violence and you know public executions and poisoning and shootouts and bombs and you know it it wears on you and especially when the the political winds are changing and the ideologies are all changing it's you can't really continue on uh, the way that you used to. I, I think that for all the British, you know, uh, sort of pontificating on why or how they lost Cyprus uh, is just an inability to face up to, you know, the, the old way of like sustained uh, um, blockades and bombardment by the East India Company was probably the most effective way. And uh, they just didn't have the ability to do that anymore. And, you know, and it, you saw it fall apart the same way in Ireland. Like they ran a whole media psyop on Ireland for decades uh, with the BBC and, and with the British media in, in Ireland, in Britain. Uh, and it and it was kind of a failure. I mean, they didn't they didn't necessarily gain anything. All they did was they were so blatant in it that most of the British population, or at least a, a chunk of the English population, began to, I think, feel some level of sympathy or just ap apathy to the idea of the war and didn't want to deal, deal with it anymore. Um, no one was really buying this narrative of like the, the English troop you know, sort of persevering and struggling as a hero in the, the streets of Belfast. Uh, no one really cared, and most people just asked, "Why is this on the television? Why are we there? What, you know, what's the logic here?" Um, and I think that had they done that in Cyprus, it might have actually made it worse. Uh, they might have actually shown a whole side of this to the English uh, population at home uh, that I think that they were probably trying to keep from them to an extent. Mm. They didn't want them seeing what the old empire was still up to, you know, it was still trying to control pieces of the world and they were far and away different. And Britain at the time internally was a, was a mess. Uh, in if, the late fifties and sixties, the economy of Britain was a, was, it was in free fall effectively. If you see the, uh, the, the English news, uh, real dispatches from the time, uh, the way that the, uh, the British press had framed it was, you know, of oh, the, uh, uh, the terrorists in Cyprus had just launched an attack that uh, killed so and so many people, um, and then you know next thing cut to oh here's the uh, the British uh, police force playing soccer with the locals. <laughs> it's literally that that blatant. And it, uh, another thing that actually just occurred to me that you know uh, I think we'd all agree relates he like heavily uh, to what we see today is that one of the things that uh, uh, Field Marshal Harding did. Uh, was in addition to have you know a greater uh, presence in the media, 
was uh, use this newfound network and relationship as a means of collecting information uh, about you know insurgent activities. Uh, and I think we 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 see that heavily today, where media is being used as a way to, you know, collect intel on dissidents. I mean, the, the journalist is a spy for the for the you know dominant power. Uh, and this was this was a, a technique, you know, intentionally uh, used uh, to as part of the British response to you know the insurgent uh, activity. I think uh, the the United States Justice Department used Sean Penn and some journalists to help like locate El Chapo. If I, <laughs> if I have that correct, I think that that was part of their whole like that. If I remember correctly. Sean Penn, the the fucking Hollywood actor, was like working with the feds to like. I knew he he gave an inter like interview with Chavo, but I I'm not surprised to hear he also spilled the beans on his whereabouts. Well, I think that they were actively tracking his location, and that's how they figured out where they got. <laughs> like, ah, okay. Sean, Sean Penn's funny. I mean, did didn't yeah, he go he like knew, swimming uh, in the Tigris during the Iraq War or something like that? He went over and like you know yeah, the Iraqi yeah, people yeah. they're not so bad and. And all this stuff. I mean, well, that makes you question what he was doing there. I know. <laughs> like every time this guy got sent down to Venezuela to hang out with Hugo Chavez, it's like in hindsight, he was probably there to like try and poison him or something. <laughs> like, you know, it's, yeah. I mean, it's it's a it's a. I'm I'm sure that the British definitely were employing that. You know, there's there's an interesting aspect in that. Um, and maybe you can expand on this, Kay. What, what was the British attitude towards the, the Greek Orthodox Church becoming more involved? Like, and if I recall correctly, the Greek Orthodox Church was really spurring this on and was kind of in full, you know, uh, Al Qaeda mode in in <laughs> Cyprus, like you know, basically like Holy Warrior kind of stuff. Yes, uh, the British were surprised by how. Uh, I guess radical, the church was. Um, they were. Uh, you could tell by their statements made about Makarios that they were offended that uh, somebody they saw as a religious leader would not for one not only have so much involvement in political affairs, but two also not be explicitly uh, uh, against the interests of uh, or, or the activities of the insurgents. Uh, they repeatedly demanded Makarios uh, uh, denounce violence, uh, and he never did. Uh, he said he didn't agree with uh, engaging in violent activities, uh, but he would always uh, stipulate that, you know, and in, in uh, to paraphrase, like, why don't you British people take a hint that you know you wouldn't have you wouldn't be facing this. Uh, this violence if you weren't doing something to provoke it. Uh, and this came as a, as a shock to the, to the, uh, British elite that somebody they saw as just a, you know, a, a religious leader would have such a, I guess, radical perspective. And I think it's, it speaks to the, the, the difference in attitude, uh, of the church, in you know, especially you know the Anglican uh, world, where 
that's not really, I mean, when you're talking in the, the 50s and 60s, the Anglican Church is well on its way to losing its its influence over uh, British uh, culture and society. Uh, and to see something so foreign to them as a, as a Christian leader, like stick up for the uh, insurgent efforts of his people was something that I don't think they even understood. And this came as a, as a surprise to them. I mean, they, I, I think many of them saw it as a breaking the rules, right? You're a religious leader. You're not supposed to do this. And that, you know, he's violated some sort of tacit rules of engagement by, by doing so, uh, which made them uh, dislike uh, Makarios, and they actually forced him into exile in the Seychelles uh, after uh, he refused to some of their negotiation terms uh, as the you know uh, as they were hold, holding uh, diplomatic meetings regarding uh, independence. So, going forward from there. Um, how bad does the the violence get and how you know what can you kind of describe what is it that the Cypriots are doing uh, that is so shocking to the British and is putting them in a uh, in, in such a bind where they have to try and um, rethink how they deal with insurgency so uh, there was a, a number of skirmishes that occurred um, from 1955 to 58. Um, where uh, the Greek Cypriot insurgent group uh, Aoka uh, is uh, launching a campaign of uh, sort of street violence, uh, propaganda uh, drops, um, you know, making demands and, uh, you know, engaging in uh, uh, violence with security forces stationed on the island. There was Two main separate um, uh, forces. There are those stationed in the mountains in the western part of the island, and those who were operating in the cities in the center uh, and the east. Uh, and from uh, according to the uh, British leaders, they most were concerned with the uh, the operations in cities. So you would have uh, actions like just shootings in the streets, you know, uh, bomb throwing, uh, different, uh, activities that were meant to, um, disrupt the, the security state that the British were now redoubling, um, as, uh, as the crisis worsens. Interesting. And, uh, and, and, what was the actual strength of the sort of the, the Cypriot rebels? So they have thousands of active combatants. Was was it sort of uh, a bit looser than that? Yeah, from what I recall, like in the the various Greek wars for independence, it was against the Ottomans. It was always um, kind of a disorganized affair. It, it was effective but disorganized, and you'd have people who would kind of take take vacations or breaks from being a rebel and then they would pick it up again and, you know, then they put it down again. Was it, was it kind of similar or was there a hardcore, uh, you know, standard set of guys that were organized on the Island? Uh, it's, it's hard to tell. Uh, the, 
Aoka organization. The truly broke. Mediterranean revolution. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. Uh, Aoka was broken down um, into cells, and communication uh. was uh, was very limited in that regard. So to, to fully uh, know the scope of what the average, how the average cell operated and how dedicated a given person was is, is kind of hard to know. Uh, what I've seen is uh, there were, uh, num- they put the number at 300 uh, fighters uh, involved in the uh, Cyprus emergency. And, you know, this is with the initial uh, Aoka force. Uh, they would, uh, again, become a... a um, an important military uh, force when the Turks invaded the island uh, in the 70s. But uh, when the uh, the first mission of Aoka, uh, independence from Britain and reunification with Greece, uh, the the numbers that I have say 300. And um, what was the status of the the Turks on the island? Were they working against Aoka, or were they, were they working alongside the British, or were they kind of trying to uh, stay out of it? Were they fleeing back to Turkey? You know, what did the Turks on, who were on the island even really do during all of this? Initially, uh, they were mostly uninvolved. Uh, it was between Aoka and the and the Brits. Um, one of the actions that uh, uh, as governor of Cyprus that Field Marshal Harding employed was the creation of an auxiliary police force. Uh, Aoka had penetrated the police force and uh, it became unreliable for the for the British to use use them effectively as a uh, you know paramilitary uh, unit. Information would slip and um, their operations would be undermined by. By this, uh, uh, you know, unreliable unreliability. Um, was this so like a we, county sheriff kind of police force? Like it was the police force for the whole island, or just for one city? I think mostly in cities. Got it. Uh, I'm not entirely sure how it uh, operated on the ground, but this is mostly with uh, like in the city of Nicosia, the capital. Got it. Uh, so what he did was created an auxiliary police force. And used uh, Turkish uh, citizens to staff it, uh, which can't really be interpreted uh, in any other way than a, an implicit racial uh, strategy. I mean, the uh, one question about it, Harding denied that he was using this, uh, you know, racial and ethnic divide uh, to his advantage. But effectively, that's what he did. Uh, and that's when, uh, Aoka started targeting this, this Turkish police force, uh, and eventually, uh, the, the Turks created their own count, like, you know, I guess you could call it, uh, insurgent movement, but more so a paramilitary, uh, called the Turkish resistance organization. Uh, and they were, you know, Started engaging against Aoka forces directly, uh, uh, separate from the from the Brits, operating on their own. But it was only after this uh, this change in policing by the British did it become uh, an ethnic conflict with the Turks as well. Interesting. 
I want to I know want to know you got your all of your opinions on uh you know using uh this these ethnic divides as a as a way to you know make up for your for uh you know an empire's own uh inadequate you know military strength that's well, a classic because, strategy yeah it's yeah. you go back to uh shit the american revolution the 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 hessian mercenaries mm-hmm. <laughs> Who battled with George Washington on Christmas? You know, it's uh, it's something that the Brit, not just the British. It, it, you know, it's there's a there's uh, the no. It's it's of, just an old political science theory, yes. and Hank talks about this. You want to pick the of two two opponents. You if you're the sort of third party, you'll ally with the weaker uh, of the two to gang up on the stronger opponent of yours. And if you allied with the stronger one, you might create a future rival. So you don't do that. So you, you always pick the one that's weaker. And in this case, that would be the Turkish groups. And I just wanted to throw in real quick that I noticed in my just uh, cursory review of this subject uh, that the Turks were isolated somewhat in these kind of uh, enclaves throughout the island. And I don't know if that's yes. evolved uh, as a consequence of the more recent conflicts or if it was always that way. Uh, but I thought that was very interesting uh, how that that sort of difference um, emerged. And it's sort of an old model uh, where even in America, we used to have these ethnic enclaves that were arguably socially engineered out of, of the country uh, and are continually uh, being uh, engineered out in favor of more of a multicultural model. But in Cyprus, I don't know if this continues, uh, but it is something I thought was no- worth noting. And I don't know how you would necessarily take advantage of that as an imperialist power in terms of controlling territory, but you certainly could use those groups to go out and annoy the surroundings for certain to control them is maybe another question but um yeah they seem strategically located throughout the island to cause trouble right and they uh become of particular importance um during the turkish invasion um very shortly after cyprus achieves its independence the government of turkey starts clandestinely uh arming and fortifying these enclaves um, to the point where they become like actual, like defensible positions militarily, uh, not just a place that people live. Uh, And that's a consequence of these isolated enclaves, uh, you know, being the way they are that you can just have this enough cohesion in one place to uh, establish things like you know uh, i've been hard pressed to find things like photo evidence of what we're actually dealing with when we say fortified but that's the uh, language that i see to describe them so i'm thinking pillboxes uh bunkers etc uh and that can make a huge difference when you're trying to defend a location i mean it's they play no small part in uh what you're capable of, of what power you're capable of projecting from a certain area well that that begs another question that i've um that i'm curious about where where were the cypriots even getting their weapons were they just getting them from from uh, the greek kingdom was there some kind of smuggling route or did they have were they i'm assuming they were probably stealing some of them from the british armories 
but were they they armed and and uh, uh, sort of maintained with equipment from Greece, or were these guys like, you know, full on Finnish winter war, where they're building their own guns and their their sheds and they're kind of crafting their own weapons and camouflage and you know, hundred percent homemade. Yes, I think they they were um, they had a mix of uh, sources. Uh, I want to say most of it came through smuggling, but uh, and a significant amount of it uh, was also equipment captured from the British. Uh, in terms of uh, you know specific uh, tactics like bomb throwing, those were all uh, homemade devices. Um, I so uh, you know the leader of Aoka, Georgios Grivas, he had a lot of the uh, experience uh, to educate and train uh, his insurgents to construct these devices and, you know, disseminated through the different cells, the instructions and tactics involved in using them. And were they receiving any other outside help or was it really just Greece? <laughs> was there, were there any, you know, uh, I guess in today, you know, in today's age, the proxy wars always have like 15 belligerents on each side, you know, vaguely involved in one way or another. Uh, was it was it really just uh, effectively Greece, the kingdom of Greece fighting the British Empire or I guess uh, post-war Britain, really? No one else was really if involved. It, if you can put it on the kingdom of Greece itself, uh, I'd probably just. Uh, you know, non-government supporters uh, funding the the transfer of arms to these groups. Uh, I'm sure it would have caused a, a diplomatic uproar if the if the you know Greek government itself was uh, found to be directly responsible for uh, arming the groups. But I, I don't know off the top of my head. Because by this time, correct me if I'm wrong, but everyone involved in this, with the exception of the Cypriots, are in NATO together. They're all in this big military alliance, supposedly against the Soviets. I mean, the Turks, the the Greeks, and the British are, in one way or another, uh, connected to the Americans, who are trying to run the security theater in the Mediterranean. So you kind uh, of have like trying to think the, of the timeline. I don't think that had quite happened yet. Oh, well, I mean. Even still, you know, the Amer United States is effectively running the the security theater of the Mediterranean, and yet under kind of under their under their noses or under their auspices, you have a a, a low grade proxy war of of a kind going on. I mean, what is there any kind of clue what the American state thought of this? What the American foreign policy establishment thought of this, or was it sort of? Uh, was it kind of regarded similar to Ireland, like, you know, vague level of interest, but, you know, you know, just sort of thought of as somewhat unimportant, really? I, I want to correct myself, though. You are right. They, they, Greece and Turkey had both been uh, uh, members of NATO by this time. Uh, but the United States um, was very supportive of the British at this time. Uh, <laughs> they... Uh, uh, I can't remember which. Uh, there, there's just so many uh, diplomatic international uh, emergencies and crises at this time. It's it's hard to keep them straight in my mind. But um, I, one of these issues that they faced the uh, 
around this time, you know, they had the support of the United States and, uh, you know, in continuity of that uh, support, uh, the U.S., you know, uh, tacitly gave its support to the, the British interest in the area. So in terms of like diplomatic negotiations and how that operated, it was between the uh, the Turks, the Greeks and the Brits on their own. Interesting. I mean, prior to um, to chatting, I, I had kind of dug around for this, and I think I found what's basically a uh, a paper written at Notre Dame uh, over a decade ago, and it it kind of comes across like a freshman thesis paper. I don't know, but it had some interesting history, and, and basically it it tries to lay the blame uh, on the part of later problems in Cyprus. Uh, including, you know, kind of the the uprun to uh, the 1974 invasion of uh, of Turk uh, by Turkey, uh, it, it lays the blame on actually on the part of the U.S. Um, and that basically the U.S. had been playing both sides to some extent. That the U.S. had actually somewhat tacitly supported, didn't really offer material or financial support, but had kind of given lip service to uh, the Greek coup, if you want to call it that, in t- Cyprus, and uh, had also given somewhat tacit support to the Turkish invasion of the island. And that uh, this was some kind of triangulation uh, methodology by the United States where uh, the U.S. wanted the British out they didn't want uh, any sort of um, uh, sort of, I guess, contested control over the Eastern Med. They didn't, you know, they didn't want anyone else who had some kind of significant naval presence or uh, military presence. Uh, they wanted, you know, the the so in order to accomplish that, the Greeks had to get the British out. But uh, in order to prevent some kind of, uh, you know, Greek, uh, what would you call it? Overconfidence in the in the possession of Cyprus and uniting with Cyprus, you know, they would uh, they would campaign against a unification, and then they would allow and encourage Turkey to uh, invade and kind of keep Greece at bay. And in one of our earlier shows, uh, we had talked about how in the in the after Turkey had joined NATO, um, there were several points where. Uh, the U.S. had to um, step in the, into the Turkish government and kind of control the, the country at a high level. One of the ways they controlled it was through foreign policy. And there was a, there was a tendency on the part of the Turkish state and the Turkish generals to prefer um, some kind of plan to rebuild the Ottoman Empire. And that involved military planned military incursions of Syria and Iraq as early as the 1950s. And the U.S. had uh, dissuaded them from that multiple times, um, kind of knowing that it would probably, especially with Syria, it would have sparked a conflict with the Soviets. And it likely would have uh, gotten a lot of Americans involved in kind of protecting Turkey, which no one really wanted to do. Um, and so I, I suspect that in the background of all this, there's probably a bit of uh, what appears to be 
kind of Amer- the, the old uh, the Kissinger triangulation, where you purposefully create situations that result in what looks like a, a balance of power. You don't want anyone to have a, a one-sided uh, um, advantage over the other. And so you purposefully do things where you get people to fight a war or take dual control over a territory, and the, it resolves the potentiality for some kind of uh, violence to get out of hand. Now, I don't, I don't know if I fully believe in that theory, but I think it, it's at least worth entertaining if we're looking for who might have been sort of fanning the flames, of, particularly of the, the Turkish response, because there wasn't really – the, the the notion of independent Turkish foreign policy around this time um, just wasn't accurate. Anytime the Turkish planned something big or did something big, it, it looks like the Americans kind of stepped in and uh, and took control of the situation. So if the Turkish were sending equipment to these ethnic minorities and if they were fortifying positions on the island, they were they probably got the go ahead. To do so from uh, from the United States. Oh right. Uh, one thing to make clear is that the the U.S. definitely did uh, have a more direct involvement in the affairs of the island post independence. Yes, um, definitely. So uh, the after uh, the the end of the uh, Turkish invasion, uh, Greek Cypriots. Uh, were very vocal in their blame of the United States for what had happened, for allowing the Turks to do what they did. I mean, they understood this very clearly, so I don't even think it's a a, a question of, you know, was this the situation? I mean, people on the ground recognized it, uh, and there were huge uh, protests in front of uh, the uh, U.S. Embassy. Um, people, I saw pictures of people holding signs, uh, you know, naming Kissinger as the uh, person at fault here. Uh, so it, it was well understood, you know, that the Americans uh, had let the Turks reach this point when they absolutely shouldn't have. Uh, and it, it culminated in the uh, assassination of the U.S. diplomat to Cyprus, uh, Roger Davies. Uh, he was killed in on duty on uh August 19th in 74, uh, you know, shot by uh, protesting Cypriots, as far as we know. I don't, I don't think the uh, person responsible for his murder was ever caught, but uh, it has, you know, been blamed on uh, Aoka. Well, there was, a, there was another interesting aspect in that once uh, everything kind of uh, – starts to die down you have the constitution of 1960 um there's a there's a funny thing that happens where uh correct me if i'm wrong but there's like uh there's this addendum or something um that it basically means that turks on the island the, the turkish cypriots get 30 percent of all civil service positions and 40 percent of the military and that you have to maintain these ratios, but it didn't make a lot of sense because Turks comprised less than 20% of the total population of the island. Right. And there so, was, they received a disproportionate uh, representation in, in government after this constitution was forged. They w- were even guaranteed the position of vice president. I mean, to this day, 
the constitution stipulates the uh, a, a Turkish Cypriot uh, holds that position, but the actual vice presidency has been vacant since '74. Really? <laughs> yes. So that it just, hasn't that been disestablished. The, that part of the constitution just hasn't just been done away with. It just, they just no. don't fill the so, role. Surprisingly, it's. Uh, a lot of the original constitution remains as is to this day. Um, it, you know, it makes no sense to me, but it the constitution made no sense from the get go. Uh, it was, uh, it quickly became a point of contention that the uh, legislature couldn't get anything done uh, based on the, uh, you know, impasses that the, uh, you know, a lot. Uh, the the assembly allotted to the Turks and the assembly allotted to the Greeks couldn't reach consensus enough to pass any legislation and uh, any reform to the constitution itself required approval from I think two thirds of both communities uh, which is impossible to get two thirds of these you know very different people who have uh, you know, already shown that they can't get regular legislation passed, much less constitutional amendments uh, to decide, like, how to restructure things. You know, the Turks know that they've got it better than they deserve based on their actual proportion. They're overrepresented in the government. And uh, the reason for the deadlock is that, you know, they are intransigent. Right. And this basically leads to uh, uh, the, the the crisis of, I guess, 1963, when uh, Makarios starts <laughs> he uh, he starts going to uh, uh, various semi-hostile countries to NATO uh, or Soviet-aligned countries, and he starts kind of seeking support. And uh, he starts working with the Cypriot Communist Party, ACAL or ACAL. Mm -hmm. uh, which was basically a rural thing from what uh, it's written. And um, this this basically all of this stems back to this belief that the uh, the the Turkish uh, uh, aspect of the Constitution was so unfair. and the the American and British presence on the island was so unfair. That uh, he wanted, you know, he wanted these people out, and he wanted this renegotiated immediately. And you know, if it meant kind of putting pressure on the United States by talking to the Soviet Union and talking to various other countries and looking for some kind of alliance or support, you know, he was he was willing to do it. He was willing to seek support from anywhere once Cyprus was, quote unquote, in independent was an independent country. Yes, he, he was more than willing to to reach out. And, you know, he knew he was very aware of the the state of world world affairs. Uh, so he understood that, you know, if he wanted to get anywhere, making new friends, uh, new powerful friends would be necessary uh, to this end. And, and he had popular support by the public in Cyprus to do so. Uh, the the Cypriots didn't have any qualms about, uh, you know, making diplomatic ties with the Soviet Union, because uh, they didn't see any threat uh, from from that end. I mean, they knew that they trusted 
that Makarios wouldn't lead them into a situation where they've traded one dominant power for another. Uh, and the Soviet Union had every, you know, had plenty of good reasons to use this as another, uh, you know, proxy for uh, uh, fighting with the West, you know, if they could uh, take advantage of the situation and use it to humiliate uh the Americas, the Americans and the British. One of the um, lasting roles that Britain played was they were one of the three uh, guarantors of Cypriot uh, independence. Um, during the, uh, the Treaty of London and Zurich uh, in 59, uh, Greece, Turkey, and the UK were all named as uh, guarantors of Cypriot independence. And, uh, you know, it became a responsibility of those three parties to uh, play a role in maintaining that independence. And uh, one of the things that precipitated the eventual invasion of the island was the uh, uh, the coup launched by the Greeks in Cyprus, the uh, you know the Turks used that as a uh, as the basis for their intervention and citing the agreement to say that while well, they saw the uh, the coup as a threat to the independence, so based on the treaty, that meant they were justified in invading. Uh, but Britain also had this uh, the same responsibility, and you know, uh, decide played a very interesting, but you know. Uh, reserved role in that uh in the turkish invasion well why did why did makarios uh, uh i guess get himself in the situation to begin with why did he instead of pushing for reunification with greece decide to compromise and push for uh independence which would just you know kind of ended up just putting him in a tougher spot because he couldn't really rely on the Greek government, you know, to directly assist him. Uh, he did for the longest time uh, push for this reunification. It was um, only at uh, the last second with um, with the UK did he change his mind. Uh, and that was because the, the British were about to uh, establish a treaty without the without Cypriot involvement at all. They were going to just be working with the Turks uh, to decide what to do with Cyprus, and he didn't want that. Um, so it, it was this very desperate moment where, uh, I, I guess in his um, estimation, that Greek Cypriots would have lost all of their bargaining power because the British were just so fed up with uh, the, the Cypriot uh, negotiations. And what what was the the position of the Kingdom of Greece? Was it was it just too kind of disorganized to really uh, stand up to this? Were they trying to give input? Were they you know kind of trying to push back against Britain? Like where was Greece in all this? Why why is Turkey get a say but not but not why not the the Kingdom of Greece? How are they kind of left out of the conversation? Uh. I think they they had really had used Makarios as their own proxies uh, in this negotiation dynamic. Um, 
eventually with a, a new, like a change in government in Greece, uh, I believe the Karamanlis administration, uh, they were the first to uh, change their official position from union to independence. Uh, whereas prior, prior uh, uh, governments had supported union, you know, this was a, a new uh, a new change of direction in terms of Greek foreign policy. And I think it was uh, mostly to um, appease the British and for economic reasons to, you know, for that this new government to uh, to gain stronger diplomatic ties with the UK that would be profitable for the Greek economy. Well, yeah, what's interesting is that at no point in this was there a kind of uh, proposal given to Turkey, um, like a population transfer proposal, which had been given to Greece by Turkey uh, to the end of the Ottoman Empire. You know, like, why don't we just find a way to re-deliver the Turks on Cyprus to Turkey? And we resolve this potential, you know, ethnic uh, warfare problem and we, you know, we don't put these people in harm's way and we, we kind of let everyone go their own own direction. Um, is it just that even if you had done that, would, would the Turks probably still have maintained, probably would have maybe even become more aggressive because they would have demanded that, you know, in actuality, it's not that there's Turks on Cyprus that we care about. It's that we don't want the Greeks to have Cyprus because it's a it's a geopolitical uh, threat to us for them to control that. Repopulation, you know, population transfer was an explicit fear of the Turks. Uh, that would have been an intolerable failure for them. Uh they saw that as like the one thing they didn't want to happen um, because it had happened in the past in Crete uh, when Crete was ceded to, to the Greeks. Uh, there were, uh, you know, Turks who were, they, they kicked them out. Uh, and that's not an unrealistic expectation because frankly, they don't fucking belong there. And that's my opinion, but <laughs> uh, they shouldn't really get a say whether they can stay or not. It shouldn't be up to them. But that was, uh, you know, maintaining a objective uh, analysis here. This that was their primary concern, and you know that would have constituted a total defeat for them. Yeah, and it, it seems like the that a lot of this keeps boiling back down to you know the British and the Americans are trying to maintain some kind of good standing with Turkey. Uh, for very obvious reasons, and that you know, the, Turkey was a, a vital piece of that of the security apparatus for not just the Mediterranean, but for countering the Soviets in, in Eastern Europe. You know, you needed the Jupiter missile sites, you needed the the uh, the communications facilities, you needed to harden the Bosphorus. Like there were all these reasons why you needed Turkey, um, and. You couldn't, you know, you couldn't risk alienating them in any way. So you'd have to give them these little kind of, um, I guess, diplomatic wins. You didn't want them to be humiliated at home. I mean, that was part of what was kind of going on with the the Turkish ideas to invade Iraq and Syria was that the Turkish generals and 
part of the Turkish government really felt like it was one of the few ways they could connect with the population <laughs> was, you know, we, uh, we're getting the empire back together. We're showing our strength. Um, because Turkey was a, was economically and politically a, a backwater in the 1950s and 60s. Like no one wanted anything to do with it. No one understood it. You really had you had Istanbul, you had Ankara, you had maybe Izmir, and then you had this vast, vast uh, hinterland f- with millions of people in it, and you, you had no clue what they were doing, and you didn't want anything to do with them, um, and you can kind of see this this attempt to well like this Kissinger idea of well you know the the, the ethnic identity and the religion those are all things of the past you know there's this new way of diplomacy and it's it's all about stability and balance and we have to balance the Greeks off the Turks and the Turks off the Greeks so we'll let the we'll let the Greeks kind of control Cyprus, but we have to ensure that there is a Turkish presence on Cyprus. Otherwise, the Turks will feel as though they are under attack, and then the Turks might seek outside aid. But, you know, conversely, the same thing starts to happen with the Greeks. You know, the Greeks might think that it's actually that they're fully entitled to it, and they might start seeing, seeking outside aid. Um, this, you know, like a lot of these problems we deal with are where the the Cold War power balancings, mainly of guys like Kissinger, who you know were ultimately concerned with the Soviet Union. And it's interesting that this stuff persists long after the Soviet Union is dead. And it's not like Greece or Turkey are going to be running to uh, sort of you know post-Soviet Russia for any aid anytime soon. Um, is this is this like still a a hot pressed issue between the Greeks and the Turks, or has it just kind of died down and and just sort of become the status quo? This uh, division of Cyprus. So, there are uh, flare ups every now and then. Um, most recently, the uh, I would say the biggest point of contention has been uh, the. Uh, presence of Turkish uh, oil drilling platforms uh, entering the Cypriot exclusive zone uh, and engaged in offshore drilling. Um, That has caused a a huge conflict uh, internationally uh, and has probably been the the biggest um, point of contention in recent years. Uh, They they try to hold... uh, you know, diplomatic sessions about what to do uh, for the in terms of unity or official like recognition of Northern Cyprus, and you know that frequently just ends in going nowhere. So it seems like a a chronic deadlock. Um, I think the Erdogan government is. Uh, particularly interested in getting more out of uh, the Turkish position in Cyprus, uh, which could lead to, you know, a reheating of the conflict uh, in recent or in in the near future. But that remains to be seen. I mean, the the, the modern um, 
political context of Cyprus has evolved a lot since this, uh, you know, 20th century uh, condition of, you know, just being at the the balance of, you know, the UK and the United States and, you know, whatever they decide uh, to let happen to the country, whereas today there's uh, a lot more parties involved in the goings-on. Uh, there's a, uh, a criminal interest in northern Cyprus. It's... Uh, as an unrecognized state, it it's become home to a lot of organized crime. A lot of Russian uh, crime, from what I understand. Well, Russian. Uh, if you look into it, it's it's a it's a Jewish uh, <laughs> organization. As it a, a from is. Russia, they're they're from yes. Russia. Yeah, yeah, right. Uh, for money laundering, there's a lot of. Um, well, apparently they're selling uh, citizenship now. Uh, Eric Schmidt, the former chairman of Google. Uh, has uh, citizenship in Cyprus now? In, in Northern Cyprus? No, I'm sure it's I'm Republic. sure it's the uh, the NATO ally part. But I just okay. I would be to, shocked if he if he decided to buy citizenship in an unrecognized country. I'm like, what the hell is that? What's going on there? No, but I, I wanted to bring up kind of what's going on with the uh, the island overall in the recent years in the news. They they kind of got a lot of attention during the Euro crisis about five years ago. And, um, you know, apparently there's there's a lot of offshore banks set up there that are either legitimate or not. I don't know if it's equivalent to the West Indies uh, operations that the British set up after the war for essentially money laundering uh, skims. Uh, and I, I don't know the details, but I do remember that happening. And I do know some people in that sphere of finance that we're talking about it very seriously that there could could be a crisis uh, necessitating an, yet another bailout in europe uh i haven't heard anything since then though so i'm assuming they swept that under the rug or fixed it um i'm not sure if you're familiar with the goings-on in the banking sector but i do know that was a big deal for a bit there the last i heard uh was around the the time when uh, the Greeks were voting on the um, uh, a new bailout agreement in 2015 that, you know, you, you hear headlines about oh, you, Russian gangsters, uh, uh, you know, rushing to Cyprus to, to secure their accounts, I guess, because of uh, there was a very real threat of a, of a bank run. Um, and I remember, in, uh, at least in Greece specifically at the time, there were uh, imposed bank holidays and limited daily withdrawals uh, from ATMs uh, as a you know specific policy to prevent that. Um, and there was there was some concern of that spilling over into Cyprus, but I haven't really heard much of it since. Do you do you foresee a um, uh, a a new kind of civil war going on in Cyprus in the future. Um, you know, reading up on what happened in, uh, in like 1967 and 68, for example, where you had basically these small scale skirmishes between uh, kind of guys sent by the Greek junta 
uh, into parts of Cyprus to attack people or attack positions. And then you'd have threats from, uh, from Turkey talking about, you know, amassing an invasion force and getting tens of thousands of troops ready. And the U S would have to go in very quickly and try and calm everyone down. And there was this, you know, massive fear of, you know, war within NATO, what would war within NATO look like? And, um, it, it nearly happened multiple times in the run up to 74 and you, you had a, a limited engagement, uh, effectively between, um, citizens, some citizens of Greece and Turkey in Cyprus. Uh, but do you think that you'll have a, an actual sovereign intranato war over the fate of the Aegean and, and Cyprus between Turkey and Greece. Uh, I do think it's a real possibility, and uh, you know, recent developments point to that uh, increasing. Not only because of the current, uh, you know, administration in Turkey's sort of hawkish, or at least you know, saber rattling attitude towards Greece and its other neighbors, um, but uh, just. Within the past couple of years, the United States has lifted its uh, weapons embargo from the Republic of Cyprus. Uh, for decades, uh, the United States denied any sales to to Cyprus. You know, uh, while it has been selling weapons to Turkey for all of that time, uh, it decided that Cyprus, you know, isn't allowed to get any uh, any weapons to preserve. Uh, the the safety of the region, uh, interesting policy there, but uh, only in uh, 2019 uh, was the embargo officially lifted, and I think in 2020, uh, a provision that allowed sales of what I read to be non-lethal weapons was approved. Uh, the politics of this are probably a little more bureaucratic than I can fully comprehend, but you know, just from gathering information from headlines, it appears that the United States is going into a direction which will uh, eventually mean the uh, the Cypriots are able to, uh, you know, reinforce themselves, which could be enough to precipitate the new conflict. I mean, one of the one of the uh, flashpoints of that era, uh, especially in the '70s, was actually oil rights and and mineral rights in, in the Aegean and in the various islands of the Eastern Mediterranean. Um, and there's all these conflicting zones of control in sea in, in the sea and in the wider Mediterranean Sea um, between Greece and Turkey. And, and basically, you know, you have economic zones of control or something like that, where every country, you know, some percentage of mileage off its sovereign territory, uh, they, it, it is strictly for their economic benefit. And then if you, if you incur into it, you're violating international law or whatever, no one cares, but you're, you're basically breaking the rules and then, you know, you can be attacked. And, um, this, this is like a recurring issue with, uh, the, the Chinese, um, uh, fishing pirates who go around the Pacific ocean and kind of pillage other countries, uh, fisheries. But between uh, the, the Anatolian coastline and the coastlines of the various islands, especially the Dodecanese, I think, uh, controlled by Greece, 
um, the 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 zones of control are effectively almost overlapping, and it's very hard to tell where one's uh, control ends and one's one begins. And um, in the seventies, there were all these questions of oil rights, and at the time they weren't even easily exploited. They didn't really have the technology or the investment capital to get a lot of that oil. But now, um, fifty years later. There's plenty of money and technology to do that, and uh, it seems like that is you know as they discover more and more and more you know oil and natural gas trapped beneath the Eastern Med, um, it seems like very possible that the uh, the zones of control between Cyprus, Greece, and Turkey will become uh, pretty important for who gets to control this energy, especially because Cyprus and Greece. Um, are in such dire straits economically, they would be kind of hard pressed trying to get a hold of those resources as quickly as possible. Right, and you know it. It's not a, a hard prediction to make to to say that the the Greeks and the Cypriots will continue to uh, to argue very strongly on behalf of their economic interests in this regard, and uh, that can mean you know. Uh, skirmishes with, uh, you know, fishing vessels and, uh, you have every, every year, like dozens of incidents of airspace violations. Uh, uh, yeah, I think we'll see, see more of that. And I think it's going to come down to one party or the other, seeing that they have the advantage and, start pressing an initiative uh, over the other in a process of, you know, gradual escalation. Well, and I think it would also come down to um, you know, where the the uh, the other interested parties fall. I mean, during the, um, the 74 invasion of Cyprus, uh, the British military stationed on the island um, did not get involved in the fighting. Yes, they tried to stay back. And if anything, you know, they hampered the uh, the Greek military efforts uh, more so than the Turks, right? And so that you know you have that that dynamic as well as uh, whether it's Greece or whether it's Cyprus or Greece and Cyprus, you know, it, it does appear as though the other interested parties in the area uh, are not uh, are not likely to uh, assist Greece at all, and probably far more likely to hamper them in their attempt to kind of maintain control of, of their of their territory. Um, and I suppose it, it comes down to, you know, are the Greeks willing to go to war over control of uh, of islands? You know, and this this comes to like a very kind of quintessential moment for a lot of civilizations. Are you willing to fight it out for control of very small pieces of land? You know, the the Japanese Empire basically decided it was willing to fight to the end for control of tiny pieces of land that uh, were, were effectively valueless for the most part. Uh, some of them had no natural harbor. Some of them had no infrastructure. You know, they they couldn't do anything with them. 
but it was a matter of pride and it was a matter of, you know, territorial integrity and, and all kinds of other, you know, larger economic issues. And, and in a longer uh, scheme of analysis, I mean, I think this proves the point that we're even talking about it is that, you know, that the Japanese people are not people who are going to surrender easily. And if you ever mess with them, there's going to be hell to pay. And I think that's either on a conscious or a subconscious level operating in a lot of personalities of peoples. And it may not look on a short time horizon to be a rational decision to fight over something that is by all, uh, objective standards, a, a pile of rocks. Uh, but if you let that go, what's next and where do you draw that line? And these are things that are harder to answer over a long time period because your, your pride, but also your reputation is at stake. And the question is, are you willing to defend yourself? And I think if you look at the broader situation, European peoples find themselves in, I think most of the world views Europe as a group of people that aren't willing to defend themselves. And so I will take my hat off to these uh, quarrelsome Mediterranean types that are willing to fight over rocks uh, if it means their people get to survive. So there's my two cents. Here's hoping we win. Too old.